All right, listen, find your Bibles. If you haven't uh, brought one, you can grab the book rack Bible right in front of you there. Let's open up, open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. You'll find that on page 1516 in that book rack Bible. We love to study the Bible, and we love to hear what it has to say to us because we believe it's God's Word and that He speaks to us when we read it. And so I hear people all the time say, how do I know if God's speaking to me? I say, open your Bible. <laughs> He'll speak to you. And uh, so it's a great thing. We love to study it, love to learn it. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our series in Matthew. We've been in the series for over a year, and now we're dropping back into it after we took a little break during Advent. And we're going to look at a passage today where some religious leaders asked Jesus to show them a sign. And you'll notice the subtitle is, What Happens When Unbelief Goes Looking for Proof? Have you ever met someone who sincerely felt that if God were to just show them a sign, you know what I mean, something undeniably miraculous, they would believe? Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever been someone like that? I mean, when you think about it, there are a lot of people making deals with God. I mean, God, if you show up, if you do this amazing, miraculous thing, I will declare you God. <laughs> I will trust you with my life. And it sounds so sincere. And many times it is sincere. But I would suggest that most times those kinds of things that we say to God are based on basically a selfish reason. Something that we want for ourselves. And if God will just come through, oh my goodness, we'll give him all the praise. I'll bet there were some people praying that this week with the $900 million <laughs> Powerball game. Well, those that laugh loudest right now might be those people. You say, how did you know I prayed that prayer? Yes, we would say, God, if you, if you make me win this Powerball, I will, and don't worry, I'll be spiritual, I will tithe that $900 million. <laughs> Maybe you're a sports fan and you say, God, if my team would just get into the winning column this year. You know, I mean, we make all kinds of deals with God. Sometimes very sincerely, we know someone that's sick and we're asking God to heal them. But it's sort of hinged on this idea that, God, you really don't get me, you don't get all of me until I get something that I can really believe that you are who you say you are. All of us have known people like this and probably in some degree or another, all of us have been someone like this. So I'd like to look at this text today from the standpoint of perhaps not so much what happens when faith goes looking for proof, but what happens when doubt goes looking for proof, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Jesus, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with, his, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. 
Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Okay, interesting passage. Uh, let me just break it down for you, and if we have a little more time, our time is a little shorter than normally when we teach God's Word this morning, but I'm going to try to put this together in a way that you will not forget, okay? So here's the point. If you look at the text, you'll see four times the mention of generation. You see it there in verse uh, 39, verse 41, verse 42, and verse 45. And I'm going to build the sermon around the idea of what Jesus is addressing about this generation, the generation he's talking to. Now remember when the question was asked, show us a sign, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So Jesus is giving us, I would believe, a little bit of a framework for what he's talking about. What is this passage essentially about? It's about, say it with me, unbelief. It's not about faith looking for evidence. It's about doubt looking for proof. And there's a huge difference. I've prayed for people that were desperate for God to do a miracle in their life. And guess what? I've seen God do miracles in people's lives that were desperate. And then they just go right on with their lives. It's like, God, thank you for this amazing miracle. You healed my wife. You healed my husband. Cancer is gone. They're healthy. And now, Lord, we'll put you safely back on the shelf where we left you. And if we ever need you again, we know where to find you. This is the mentality of most people. If God comes through... If it's just doubt looking for proof, that's all that there is. Now, sometimes people are sincere, and God does show up in amazing ways, and he reveals himself in amazing ways. I'm not putting down any desperate prayer that someone here today might be asking God to do. He may meet the answer to your prayer so that you will trust in him. But I'm going to suggest to you that the reality of that equation isn't really the way God works. If you're looking at the text, let me give you the first little point here. Verse 38 shows us that for generations, people have blamed their unbelief in Jesus on a lack of evidence to prove who he is. This is our, this is our MO. We blame our unbelief on the fact that there's just not enough evidence to believe. And if we just had more evidence, like God showing up and doing something crazy amazing, then that would do it for us. But and this is really common. I mean, I, we, people of every age and every generation have hidden behind their unbelief with the claim that there's just not enough proof to cons- convince them that God is who he is. Uh, maybe that's been you. Um, I'm reminded Gary Larson years ago, I, I don't know if he's still doing cartoons, but I used to like watching Gary Larson cartoons, uh, little, you know, pictures. And he drew this one cartoon of a, of a dog and zoomed in on the dog was uh, in the thick of the dog's hair was two fleas. And the fleas uh, say one to another, one looks to the other flea and says, sometimes I'm really not sure that there is a dog. (laughs) And at the bottom, the caption is uh, agnostic fleas. Okay. (laughs) So here they were on a dog, living amongst a dog, and they can't see a dog. Now, the amazing thing about this is, is that when you stop to think about it, we have so much to so much evidence to believe that there is a God. I mean, we've talked about this. You look up in the solar system, and, and your spirit says there's a God. That's what uh, Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night, they pour forth speech. 
There's nowhere that their words have not gone out. It's like when you look in the heavens, you go, man, there must be a God. Or you look at the microorganisms. You look at the smallest particles of life. You look at the life in a womb. You look at your uh, physiology as a human being. And you, and you say, there's got to be a God. It's amazing. The miraculous from the micro to the macro. And God has woven all of that in to say it's like his signature. I think Blaise Pascal, a famous philosopher, said that in every man there's a God-shaped void that only God can fill. It's like everyone knows that there's this, this being, this ultimate being. And if we just draw in, if we just listen, if we just... That's faith coming to a God that does exist and we know that God exists. But that's a whole lot different than sort of sitting back, folding our arms and sort of saying, God, prove yourself to me if you're really out there. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews tells us. And so there's absolutely no way to sort of begin that, that transformation of unbelief to belief without God doing something miraculous. So if you're taking notes, what I see in verse 39 is that the problem of unbelief isn't because of a lack of evidence. It's traced to a more menacing reality. It's not a lack of evidence. And, and the menacing reality that verse 49 says, 39 says, look at it, it says, um, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. By the way, go over to Matthew 16. You'll see this again. This happens a couple times in the Gospels. Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, maybe what's behind this sign, uh, and you think about this, if you know the context of Matthew, up to this point, Jesus has been doing all kinds of miracles, I mean, he's healed the, the man with the shriveled hand. He's he, just previous. He's, he's uh, exercised demons out of a guy. I mean, he's done these miraculous works. And so they're saying, we want to see something better. We want to see something more advanced, something bigger, something greater. And this is the way our human nature is. So the blame, if you're looking for where blame, you can't blame your unbelief on a lack of evidence. Here's what, here's what needs to be seen. The blame falls squarely on your spiritual condition. The blame is on our spiritual condition. The blame is on the way we are born into this world. And Jesus calls this generation, verse 39, 41, 42, and 45, he calls it a wicked generation. And basically what he's saying is just you are born in sinfulness and there's no cure to your sinfulness until you come to me and believe. The problem is you are, you are born in unbelief and you need a supernatural, like he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You must have a radical, uh, uh, supernatural change in your life for you to see spiritual things. You can't see it unless I do that work. So it's not that you need more evidence. It's, need, it's, it's that you need a transformation. You need to go from unbelief to belief. Because when you come uh, to faith, when you come to God, watch this, when he has quickened your heart, awakened your heart to see who he is, then all you see, watch this, are you listening? All you see is evidence of who he is. You see him everywhere. You see him in conversations with people and co-workers. You see him in the newspapers you read and you see the terrible things in the world and all of it just seems pointing up to God and who he is and his holiness and our sinfulness and it's just like this, it's so obvious, it's like the, the nose on our face. And we can't even deny it. And at some point in your life, you come to this point where you say, if, if God is drawing you, you come to the point where you say, I'm in. I'm pushing all the chips into the center of the table. I don't need any more evidence. It's everywhere around me. That's what happens when faith comes looking for proof as con in contrast to when doubt comes looking for proof. 
The principle of believing apart uh, from the gift of God uh, doesn't exist. It's what John Calvin, the great theologian, called total depravity, which is humanity's inability to respond to God apart from his enabling grace. It makes logical sense that if we are born in sin, lost and blind, then only a supernatural work of God himself can awaken this dead life of ours. We need a resurrection. Ephesians 2.4, Paul writes, he has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Aren't you glad? Did you notice the emphasis? He has made us alive. And once he makes us alive, then guess what? All we see around us is evidence of who he is. Now Jesus says, notice in verse 39, the end of it, he says, only one sign. He says, none will be given this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to see. The only chance for unbelief to change into belief is for God to reveal to someone the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only chance a person has. Uh, this is amazing. Jesus says here that there's no sign given to a wicked and, generation, wicked and sinful generation but the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Uh, what is this sign of Jonah? The, the sign that God uses, and I'll, I'm going to fill this in, but just if you think it, the one sign God uses to rescue humanity from unbelief to belief is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the one sign. That's the one thing that when you go looking, when you see that, it's that that's all you need. Jesus died and he rose again from the grave. That's an amazing reality. Now, now he says the sign of Jonah, and that's exactly what the sign of Jonah is. You know the sign. You know, you know the story of Jonah? Anybody, raise your hand if you know the story of Jonah. Okay, good. Let me have you tell it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> just everybody's hand went down really quick. You know the story of Jonah. Here he's this prophet, and God says, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach repentance. Oh, the city of Nineveh? Sure, God, no way. And Jonah goes another way. And the reason why is that Jonah, it wasn't because Jonah was just disobeying God, didn't feel up to the task. Jonah hated the Ninevites, and he didn't want God to fulfill his promise that if he preached repentance, they would repent. You know why a lot of us don't share Christ with people in our lives? Because we don't like them very much. That's a reality. When you don't share Christ with people that you're around all the time, basically you don't care about them. Can you imagine standing in eternity and seeing somebody that you were around all your life that, that knew you were a Christian you never opened your mouth about Jesus to that person? How would they feel in that moment? So Jonah, I don't want to make you, okay, let's just release that for a second. <laughs> Jonah goes another way. So he's on a ship and he's heading to a completely opposite direction and God sends a storm, remember? And it's raging and so Jonah's on the ship and it's revealed that the reason why the storm is happening is because Jonah's running from God. And Jonah admits it to the people. He goes, if you guys want to survive, you're going to have to pitch me over, overboard. And they all say, good idea. <laughs> Nobody wants to die. So they take Jonah and they huck him over the side of the ship. And now you would think that Jonah is basically a goner because he's out in the ocean he's going to die. Because nobody survives something like that. But God is so merciful, isn't he? God sends a giant sh a fish we believe some amazing things, don't we? God sends an amazing giant fish and swallows Jonah up. And I've heard people debate, could this have possibly been the case? And some people say, yes, there's evidence. I know someone, you know, I've read about people that have been eaten by giant whales and all this and they lived. And they... 
Yeah, I mean, I guess, whatever, but it's in the Scriptures. And Jesus says, the sign of Jonah is the only sign that's going to be given. So what is the sign of Jonah? Jonah, now he's in this fish, and God's taking him to Nineveh by virtue of an amphibious landing, okay? (laughs) That fish is in obedience to God going to Nineveh, and he's going to burp him up on the shores. And you can just imagine how he smelled then. And so he gets the picture. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches repentance, probably the whole time thinking, I hope they don't, I hope they don't, and they do. And there's more to be discovered in the book of Jonah, but here's the deal. Jonah was, and you'll read the the book of Jonah, Jonah was as good as dead, but God raised him up so that he could speak his truth. Good as dead, raised up to speak the truth. You know what we heard this morning? We heard Jonah stories. As good as dead but raised up and speaking the truth. Who do you place your faith in? Jesus Christ. Some of you heard that today and God has been awakening your heart and you say, that's what I need. I need a resurrection in my life. Well, God is using your story and we're going to leave here today in just a couple of minutes, actually, and we're going to go out and tell our stories. We're all going to be Jonah stories this week. We were as good as dead. He raised us up and he sent us out. So the story of the Old Testament prophet Jonah is, is something that God uses to lead unbelievers to faith. And he mentions this other, this queen of, of the south. This is in 1 uh, Kings 10. It's the story of Queen Sheba, the queen of Sheba, excuse me. Uh, we don't really know much about this person. Um, probably from a city in Ethiopia or somewhere in uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. We're not really sure where this place was, but she comes, she travels great distance to sit before Solomon's feet and glean wisdom from him. And Jesus says, watch this, he says, someone greater than Jonah is here, and he says, someone greater than Solomon is here. And I, if I read my Bible right, Colossians 2.3 says that in him, Jesus, all the, wis- all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden So in Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it is found in Jesus. And think about this. Look at the irony of this. The queen of Sheba traveled great distance to sit before Solomon's feet. We have the king of kings who travels from heaven to earth and actually knocks at our heart's door and hear my voice, Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what? I will come in and live with him. So the king of the universe comes knocking at the door of our hearts who, is, who houses all the kingdom or all the knowledge of wisdom in, in his bodily form. That's an amazing truth. So if you don't feel special, uh, you ought to. Because God has come great distance and spared no expense to give you the opportunity to trust in him and receive eternal life. Which comes to this last little paragraph, and if we had a little more time, we'd unpack it a little more, but it's simple. Here's what I'm going to suggest. 43 through 45, this whole thing about, you know, the spirit leaves and comes back and it's all clean, and, and so now seven more spirits with it. Here's, Jesus is talking to the religious elite. I mean, these would be guys who say, you have it all together. You are in. You guys are the ones that, that if anyone's in, you're in. And Jesus is saying to them, unbelief is unbelief, no matter what it comes in. It can come in a religious package. It can come in a moral package. It can come in a philosophical package. It can come in a good works package. It can come in a smiling face, relational, social being package. It can come in all kinds of packages, but lost is lost. Unbelief is unbelief. You can decorate it. You can sparse it up or spice it up. You can do whatever you want to do. But unless you 
unless God moves you from unbelief to belief, no matter how you look, in fact, you're probably in a more desperate place when you hear the truth and you see God at work and you pull the shade and you say, nah, not today, not now. Because the enemy of your soul loves to keep you in unbelief. And I know it's a supernatural work. I, listen, God has to turn the light on, but if he's turning the light, if he's showing you something, you need to go for him. And the, and the great, the, the, hinge, the, the hinge pin to it all is knowing that there's a God who came in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, his son, his beloved son, who, who lived a perfect life, who died a brutal death and rose again from the grave three days later. And when you hear that in your spirit, by faith, if God is making you alive, you say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And you come to him in faith and if you're not careful, your pride will say, oh, look what I figured out. And it's not you, it's God's grace and mercy and it's showing you what you can't see with your physical eyes. And that's the miracle of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate every day. And when we get together on Sundays, we hear the Jonah stories and we reflect our stories and we're gonna go out from here now back into our mission field. And there's someone here, I'm sure, that God has been preparing and today is your day. Hallelujah. Today's your day. Amen. So let's stand together, everybody, right now. Nobody leave. Lock the doors. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. If you came this morning and you need Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to ask you to follow me in your heart. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it out loud if you want. But if the Spirit of God has brought you to a place of life and now your faith has seen all the evidence it needs, trust in Jesus right now.